Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey everybody, it's Kevin here with the Digital Forester podcast. I just wanted to let you know at around the 13 minute mark on this podcast with Dr. Mark Correo, we had one of those lovely internet glitches and so we lost a bit of the audio. I just wanted to highlight on behalf of Dr. Correo and, and Northwest Management Inc. that um, with ForestView that there are several trademarks that are registered with ForestView. So just want to make sure that that important tidbit uh, of information uh, was not lost due to that internet glitch. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast. Today, it's a great pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Mark Correo, the Director of Technology at Northwest Management Inc. or NMI. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing good, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you. We were joking earlier. I think the last time we connected, I was trying to make it down to your Foresters Forum and I got grounded in Calgary, a snowstorm. And no matter how, whichever way Delta tried to route me, there wasn't a chance I was making it down. And you guys were gracious enough to let me call in, although I hate doing it. It's probably the worst experience, you know, some ghost voice in a loud room. Uh, but hey, welcome to Winter Travel. But it's great to see you. We we're kind of joking that although we've talked in the past, we actually didn't have the opportunity to meet in person. I know some, you're down at SAF, you and your team, and then some of our folks yep. were there as well. But again, I didn't make that trip, so missed the opportunity as well. But hey, I'm really pumped to have this conversation with you because there's things I want to learn in terms of your background, your story. I think there's a totally awesome, wicked cool story to to share with our, our viewers and listeners. But maybe to kick us off, tell me how you got into forestry because you got University of Idaho, you know, forest mm-hmm. undergrad degree, a bit of hydrology, water science, and then even a PhD in soil physics and environmental law. I'm going to need you to untangle yeah. that one for me because <laughs> I don't know if I should call you for legal advice or what, but, uh, but how'd you get into forestry? Well, so it, yeah, it's a, it's not as complicated of a story. Maybe it's maybe how I came back to forestry. So my father, actually, my whole family's from the East coast in Boston and my father came out um, looking for a forestry job in the seventies and it stuck. And then, so my brother and I, we were born and raised in Idaho and forest tromping all over the mountains. Um, and when I went back to school, because he was a forester and he started those business, I did everything I could to not work for him. <laughs> and so, so I, I went in and tried fisheries for a while. I tried, uh, soils for a while. I even tried pre-med radiology for a while and, wow. and ended up graduating with a undergrad from the university of Idaho in forestry, because I really just, I liked trees. I really liked wood. I'd always done a lot of carving as a kid and things like that. Um, then again, tried to avoid working for the family business. So I went to Colorado, um, seeking water resources, ended up in snow physics and really did a lot of snowboarding and measuring frozen things you, you were really trying to get away weren't yeah. you right? <laughs> i was trying hard um and then again ended up in a construction job uh down in denver and long story short left construction went back to water did water rights in montana for a while because it was closer to natural resources needed to get closer to the trees and actually uh one of the partners of my father worked with said hey come back and start a water resource service for Northwest management. Um, I think it was just a ploy to get me to come back and be a forester, but <laughs> came back and, and uh, actually got accepted to work at the University of Idaho after a number of field seasons with the company. Um, and they said, if you're willing to get a PhD, we'll work with you and uh, you can study whatever might benefit the company. So I always had a propensity for physics and I always like. I never was allergic to paperwork, and I liked policy. So I <clears throat> spent two years in the law school, wow. and spent two two years in uh, hardcore soil physics, applied physics, and they gave me a multidisciplinary PhD, um, and sent me on my way. So yeah, yeah I came back to the company because in that mismatch of degrees. I got exposed to terrestrial laser, LIDAR scanning and lasers, and we were doing it on grass. And I figured, well, you know, if you can use a tripod laser scanner on grass, 
than one in an airplane for trees, you know, maybe there's something there. So that there's the full circle. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So I, I always joke. It's like, no matter what we do to, to do the opposite of what our parents often say, inevitably they're right. Like we just got to accept it. Yeah. That, hey, we do. that are right. And, and there you go. And, and if only we knew that earlier, we probably would have saved ourselves that much more pain. Uh, uh, I day. completely agree. Yep. <laughs> so, so very <laughs> cool. Like soil physics, so that's awesome. You know, hardcore applied science there with the, the law component really um, interesting there, like must've been amazing coursework and balancing multiple um, ideas in your head during that, that, that PhD and university of Idaho is super cool. I know I've been in your neck of the woods and beautiful country, like to, you know, work there, gorgeous terrain geography. So amazing on that front. And, and so as we think about um, NMI and the work you're leading now, um, would you say like some of the stuff, uh, the cool stuff NMI is doing now is a direct, uh, extension of your PhD research? Yes. Yep, it is. So the company right now, I mean, for years and years, the company's been in business since 1984. Wow. Um, you know, we'd done between 40 and 60,000 inventory plots a year as forestry sector. That was the core of the business for almost 30 years. Um, and just in the last <clears throat> probably 10 years, there's a forestry inventory component. There's the pure forestry component of, of growth and yield and modeling. And then there's a, an environmental planning service that does the documentation and, and forest management plans, et cetera. And now we, yes, have that extension of my research, which is, uh, we call it tech services, but it's technology. It's GIS, it's remote sensing, it's, um, uh, you know, laser range finders. It's, it's trying to take those tools that, a lot of folks across the industry are either really starting to integrate now for field work to make themselves more efficient, more effective, or they're trying to learn how to use the tools to do that. Um, whether it's, you know, remote sensing from, from the sky down, or it's a handheld instrument with batteries. So yeah, that, that's, uh, that's how we're set up now to cool. really integrate that across the traditional services we've provided. Yeah, so thinking of that you, unique perspective, because you're doing the traditional forestry services going into a, a different space, um, I'm going to assume this was a walk in the park, easy journey, <laughs> everyone's just buying in, right? Tell, tell me about your yeah. experiences to date so far. So the first set of scripts I wrote coming out of school were in R, and they were to try and digest a lidar data cloud into something usable and i would say it was it was it was a rodeo i think the first script took 30 days to run a hundred thousand acres um it's a right it's a right of passage just, for all of us right you gotta have a, a oh, long running yeah. script right to get your street creds <laughs> yep so we did that um and we had a number of you know we would present and it would they just be like yeah no just cruise it and and so we did we did a lot of that. I, it was from 2005 to or 2015 to 2019. So just a solid four years. It was spend money, break, spend money, break, wait, spinning wheel of computer, broken code, crappy data, and you know just trying to figure out the nuances of lidar too. I mean, there's there's publicly available lidar. There's Ladder from a drone, ladder from a helicopter, ladder from an airplane. So uh, one of the things we always joke about, actually, there's a sign in the office that says all LIDAR are not created equal. And <laughs> I think we learned the most just QA, QCing data sets that clients would give us and say, hey, we got LIDAR, do this for us. And we'd be like, yeah, it's not going to work. We can't get there. So yeah, we we had a good solid four years of beating our head against the wall, I guess. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So it's cool because sometimes you got to go through those trials and tribulations to really understand what the technology is capable of and then localizing it for, for whatever problem you're trying to solve. So maybe we'll just jump right into it. And I know we'll bounce around because again, as director of technology, even on your LinkedIn profile, I know you're tasked with monitoring different technologies and what they mean for forestry. So I suspect we'll have a great conversation about what the future could look like, but maybe we'll sure. just jump right into to forest view because this is uh the, sure. I don't want to say the new baby, but maybe the 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 new thing uh, that that you're probably proud of. You probably spent 
oodles of hours getting this this thing going and there's some cool um you know buncher field tests and whatnot but maybe uh walk us through that that journey of how you got to force view and and sure. what some of the lessons learned might be in the technology what's involved you mentioned drone airborne what is that and then we'll we'll have some fun with that and see where we go okay um yeah we so we started by just trying to identify tree peaks, as everybody does, using standard watershed algorithms and stuff that you could find in open source software. Um, did that started the through, and it kind of culminated in 2019. We had a client allow us to fly about 50,000 acres of LIDAR um, in the southwestern U.S., which was important. I'll explain that in a second. Um, so we flew that, processed it, and out of it came a reasonable identification of all the trees. Well, one thing we did learn is that when you get a bunch of Ponderosa pine trees that get really old because their rotation age is a hundred plus years, uh, they kind of get this mushroom top to them and trying to use a watershed algorithm to find mushrooms is really challenging. <laughs> so that, that kind of prompted some more development. Um, we did a 600,000 acre project in 2020, um, and it was it was more successful um, numbers of different segmentation methods as well as um, where we started to develop uh, specific metrics on each tree so like shapes of crowns um, reflections of crowns from the the lidar technology now all of this to that point was air aerial lidar um, and those two projects were flown with a uh, a sawtooth scanner so the the zigzag pattern which as you can imagine, there's challenges because there's gaps when the zigzag goes by. And so we processed through those and were able to um, keep the client happy and, and provide uh, tree lists and other metrics, roads, streams, things that started to really show the value beyond just an inventory. Um, and in 2021, we did a three point just over 3 million acres in 11 states um, for a couple different clients with a matrix scanner. So more of a, a dot um, grid that's equidistant. And that started to show quite a bit more value. Uh, it let us take it to a single tree level that um, we could get lower. We could get smaller tree objects down uh, around two meters or six feet and started to tease out um, ideas of groupings of species uh, by just structure alone. And then um, this year we have started to integrate um, high resolution imagery collected in conjunction with the LIDAR. And that's really where Forest View got its legs was kind of 2020 transition away from the sawtooth scanner into some of the most modern technology. Um, we started working quite a bit and getting some, uh, uh, tossing some ideas around with a couple different forestry cooperatives in the US. We started working with a, a partner of ours, uh, their name is Interpine in New Zealand. A lot of folks know them in the in the LIDAR community. Um, they are, they do wonderful things down in their neck of the woods. And so really we were um, late 2019, middle 2020, I think is when it finally registered because we, figured that we needed that because our clients were asking us for um, uh, proof in the pudding, I guess. So we did a lot of pilot projects throughout this. I mean, that sounds like a great path. 50,000 acres, 600,000, 3 million, I think will be somewhere around 7 million acres or something this year. Um, but in between that, there we've probably done 15 or 20 pilot projects that are, that are substantial effort. Um, testing different sensors. We've tested Optic, Leica, Regal, um, uh, Velodyne. We did try some drone work for a while, but uh, drones were just not scalable. You start to get where the, the sensors on the drones are more expensive than the drones themselves. Yeah. Um, so there were challenges there. And in testing all the different sensors, uh, the matrix scanners are all awesome technology but they do provide some added value and benefits over some of the other scanners that are out there. And then, uh, you know, aside from these pilot projects, we do 
um, use our traditional core of forestry boots on the ground, um, we have about 35 staff that do um, intense field work for every one of our LIDAR projects. So we, we fly the LIDAR and then we go in behind it inside that same growing season and do a lot of plots that are fixed radius, highly GPS, stem mapped, um, different sizes based on whatever the objectives are for that project um, all over. Um, I think we put in from March to August last year, <laughs> the worst part of the season, we were in like Louisiana, Ooh. Georgia, Alabama. So yeah, we had some really tough, tough foresters from Idaho wading through crocodile infested no kidding. cotton mouth ground. I, I was, yeah, I was impressed. I was impressed. We, uh, one of the clients called our team, the Navy seals of field workers yeah. So well, I don't know about that, but I'm glad we didn't lose anyone. Yeah, no so. kidding, no kidding. So, so thinking of that, like obviously, like lots of pilots, you know, our our forest industry is renowned for wanting to do pilots before maybe jumping two yep. feet in, and and it is what it is. And at some point, we all end up getting to the point where we say, no, we don't need to do pilots anymore. This is a, you know, we've done yeah. however million acres, we're good to go, um, type of scenario. Um, so sounds like lots of testing. And then so thinking from, you know, channeling some viewers, listeners, but but, but Mark, it's like a lot of folks do area-based inventories using LIDAR and say that's good enough. And then so you're obviously doing an individual tree one. What what are your thoughts on that? Was it just the people you're working with just weren't interested in that? It wasn't enough of a shift from traditional cruising to go to an area pixel-based. They just wanted to go to the tree list. What what are your th okay. what did you see uh, evolve or how did that evolve in your world? Actually, Kevin, yeah, that's a that's a great question and and thanks for bringing that up because um so when we started into the lidar stuff in 2015, 16, 17, um, in our initial tests, it was only to learn about the technology. We did so much boots on the ground inventory and measurement that. We figured if we didn't at least know about the technology, be able to explain it to our clients where the value may or may not be, if it did take hold, we wouldn't have a job. And so that's really where it started. And actually in those conversations, um, you know, a lot of our clients are tribal nations across North America and, and into Canada um, and small private landowners. It was pretty unanimous among all of our long tenured clients that they had tried a few different um, area-based products and operationally on the ground, whether they were marking trees or thinning or harvesting or, or what they were doing, they had to have something that was either as good of as a variable radius inventory cruise or better. And so we took the gamble and put all of our eggs into trying to enumerate at least 90% of the merchantable and submerchantable trees in Western forest that we were working in. So yeah, it was completely client driven. Um, and there's absolutely value in area-based products. We do area-based products for some of our clients that only need answers at a stand level or that are doing county or state or federal level forest uh, planning um, documents and analyses where they only need the, the landscape scale. They don't need that single tree resolution. So yeah, that, that's what drove that. And then when we found when we were trying to statistically explain stuff to people that knew what they were doing, uh, biometricians and folks in the industry, Having the single tree level resolution, even in places where it broke down some, it was a lot easier to like to dive straight in and show them, here's what's underlying this 20 meter pixel or 30 meter pixel or this one acre answer. Um, and it also gave a little more confidence or confidence to some of our clients that were trying to model it. They're trying to force it into growth and yield models that needed a plot type structure. Um, and I think that's probably where we're, we're all going is how do you actually handle the, the sheer volume of data that would be in trying to grow even a area-based forest forward in time one year 
five years, 10 years, 20 years. And so I know that, you know, FVS and FPS, the Forest Biometrics Research Institute, um, has some pretty robust growth models and you can trick them into growing trees forward in, in blocks or or aggregated tree lists and stuff. And so, um, yeah, it was client driven to get us there. Right. For sure. For sure. So thinking of, of um, you know, obviously you're working with, I don't want to say sophisticated clients as if everyone else is not, but but at the end of the day, they're they are sophisticated because they're looking at these new technologies and what it can mean for their their business, whether from a competitive point of view or or to meet some business requirement around ESG, uh, whatnot. But for maybe a listener who's because again, you and I both know forestry is like so different anywhere in the world. Like right. it's it's just different uh, per se. But maybe for a listener who's stuck right now, surveying the landscape and trying to figure out like w- which way should I go. How would you advise them? Like, what are some of those questions, you know, you and your seat with NMI would ask this individual to help them figure out, do you even do LIDAR or then do you do an area base, do you do an individual tree, do you go, you know, satellite, do you do like, there's so many options now that sometimes I hear people say it's like, there's just so much noise and not necessarily bad noise, I suppose there's just so much out yeah. there. And I don't have a PhD in soil physics and environmental right. or lighter. Like, <laughs> like, help me out. How do I even move forward? What What are some of those pro tips you might give some of those folks that are listening? Um, well, that's actually, we call it an overload of options. And so, yeah, it, to speak to your noise comment there, a lot of times um, the first thing to do is find out what your objectives are. What What are you asking of your landscape? Does it require a single tree level? Does it require um, you to group certain sizes of trees or species of trees or anything? And, and once you understand that, I would say that at least 50% of the folks out there that are asking stuff of their landscape, you know, planted imagery is fantastic. Even sometimes Google Earth is will get you where you need to go if your if your timing is broader if you don't need it like right then right now every single year um there's a lot of the satellite products out there sentinel 2 data is pretty valuable to be able to get at least a classification of differences across the landscape and um where at least major changes happen fire um, larger clear-cut harvest things like that so most of the time, I would say 50% of the people out there, there are open source software. There are packages you can use to get an idea of your landscape enough to come up with plans, put together in, um, objectives, and kind of come up with either a, a forest management plan or a wildlife management plan or or at least a layout of what you've got to work with. Um, then, depending on your scale, there's... There's people that are very capable with uh, swarms, swarms of drones that have LiDAR on them that'll do some really high-resolution structure for motion, which is where you take a lot of pictures and you build a 3D model um, where you can see change or harvest boundaries. I mean, drones are very valuable at that small scale. Um, there's helicopter providers out there that have uh, fantastic, super high-resolution data scans that... I would say are usually constrained to the engineering world or the academic research world, but they can help us answer questions about um, height to live crowns and and possibly defect in trees or better species ideas from structure. Um, and then of course there's custom-based aerial ladder, which is what we do. It's the sweet spot we found for getting a very high resolution look of your landscape at a very big scale, easily a million acres or plus. Um, it's not the cheapest thing in the world though. Uh, we don't expect to be the cheapest. It's, it's um, you know, even at scale, you're still looking at $3.50 an acre for a half a million acre project. And that's assuming that it's somewhat near itself. It's not in three different states. So, you know, it's still pretty costly. And then of course there's the area-based a wide area like a USGS LIDAR. Um, very valuable for structure. It's usually available, pretty easy to get, free to download. It gives you ideas of what the um, different structure of tree heights and, and what you've got on your landscape, identifying roads, maybe streams, depending on its age. But um, 
I don't know that that helps the the listeners because there is so many options out there. I would just say any one of the the companies that has a robust remote sensing service, just ask them whether it's us or or uh, Kevin or or uh, the variety of other people that that do this in the industry. I think all of us would unanimously say we're here to help the client. We're here to help the people understand what you have on your ground. Just define what it is you're trying to ask. I guess if I have something to guide people, it's it's try and get a clear picture of what you want. Yeah, that's probably the biggest challenge we have. Yeah, that, that's great. Uh, definitely. You know, what, what are we trying to do and make sure you understand that the business objective, maybe or yeah. the problem we're trying to solve. Absolutely. That was great, actually, Mark, as you kind of laid out different options for people to to start, whether it's you no know, free data you know, yeah. free tools. We know those exist, or we can say that just boils down to call Mark at NMI and he'll solve all your problems and, and we're done. <laughs> right. Be. So there we go. <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, so absolutely great. Lots of options there. Now, one of the things I'm curious to poke your, poke your, not literally poke your brain, I guess, but, but pick sure. your brain, not that that sounds any better, but, <laughs> but thinking of, um, people who are doing this, it's always the proofs in the pudding. Right. So they're like, you know, Mark, yeah, I've heard other people talk about this. Yeah, I've heard it's so great. Um, costs always laughed. Uh, you can't talk about costs in isolation or void of value because at the end of the day, it's 350. If you save 10 bucks, the hell cares? Spend the 350, right? It's it's not rocket yeah, there. So. But thinking of validation, now I know you guys have done some cool, again, I watch on social media, so some mm-hmm. kick-ass videos and stuff like that. But I know you guys are doing some trials, you know, with bunchers and validating. Can you maybe share with us um, some of the, the the results and how tight the Forest View product um, is for our listeners? Yeah. Um, as far as some of the validation, we, we put a lot of energy into the validation uh, we have a pretty solid uh, relationship collaboratively with the University of Idaho. They've got an 8,000 acre um, school forest that's got a full operating um, couple student logging crews. Uh, they own their own equipment. And so we've done a number of different tests where we've flown LIDAR over their forest and then matched it with field data, matched it with harvester data, and really tried to get at how accurate is it in especially the Western US um, where you have a really diverse forest and diverse species. And it's very good in middle-aged, thinned and and relatively static forest conditions at getting your dominant, co-dominant, intermediate and some of the suppressed trees. You start getting into a really dense landscape with a lot of topography, especially west side um, U.S. Um, you're you're looking at dominance, co-dominance, and maybe some intermediates. <clears throat> There's just a lot of occlusion and stuff, but most of the time we're at we're better than ninety percent tree detection for tree for tree. Um, we stop at about in those very dense situations. We usually stop at about fifteen feet in height. If it's a little more of a managed forest, we can get down to four, five, six feet height. Um, the diameter models that we have, I would say, are probably the most the things that we're most proud of. They take into account a lot of different uh, tree metrics, or uh, for those forester people out there, the allometry of a tree. So how all the cool things about a tree that us nerds like. Um, uh, but it, it takes into account a lot of different things that can be measured on the st- shape, structure, density, and such of a tree to where most of the time we're plus or minus about an inch to an inch and a quarter on diameter. Nice. Um, and of course, there's natural variability, which <clears throat> we do have with our partnership with the University of Idaho and some others. We've been providing data at clients' approval to them to do third-party validation and testing. We did a felled tree study, which is some of the videos that you see on our website down in East Texas. Um, and that one, I think the most exciting part for me was all the tree heights were within three feet of each other, but the diameters varied widely between like a five inch diameter tree right next to a, an 11 inch diameter tree. And they're all the same age. And it just depends whether maybe how they were planted or their feet were in water, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, 
down there, our, our diameter model actually picked up, um, I would say, better than 85% accuracy on those. It did miss some of the big swings that I would, you know, we would consider outliers, but um, across a big chunk of the landscape, you know, better than 10,000 acres, um, we were plus or minus an inch on loblolly plantations. Now, I got asked at SAF about hardwoods, and my response is to be the same here. Hardwoods are a mess. I hate hardwoods. They're they're very challenging. Um, yes. Leaf off, of course, makes it way better. But they're a, they're a whole other animal. Um, the the research and the services are getting there. But as an industry, I think there's still quite a bit to be learned about how to figure out how to do that uh, lidar scan of a hardwood and make some serious value out of it. Yeah, for sure. And and that's cool. I, I love the fact that you're being open and honest in terms of where the technology is at, what it can do, because often you and I both know from our time in the space, there's people who say, I can do it all, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, software hardware. Yeah, I can, I can do it. You know, no problem, Mark. And the reality is, uh, you know, there's complexity in our force and and sometimes yes. that complex that complexity uh wins. So so definitely cool to to hear you describe, you know, where it works. And I think one of the things I think about is there's always naysayers, right? Like, oh, it's like you only get 90%. Yeah, but 90% across millions of acres, like you're almost doing a wall-to-wall census. It's like like you can't do that anywhere else. So, you know, at some point those naysayers just have to kind of buy in and, and see what what the product is versus just kind of poking from the side there. So very cool, very yep. impressive on that side of things. Um, looking forward, um, you know, before we shift maybe gears and talk more about technology, because I'm dying to sure. hear your views <laughs> on different things, but thinking of Forest View, where are, we, where are you going next with it? Like it's obviously being used on yep. millions of acres. Um, is this really now just, you know, part of go-to market? How do you scale this out to other people? Or do you foresee, you know, needing to invest in some new widgets or capabilities or refinements so where, where where's the world look like for the next year and three years for forest view so forest view right now we've we've just scaled our hardware up we've got a full fiber line um into our office with um a petabyte level server and, and some serious horsepower behind it i i say that because most of our clients being tribes we have certain confidentiality things that we don't let us put data in a cloud so okay. that is a different challenge for us compared to others that can maybe take advantage of the AWS cloud and stuff. So we've we've had to learn how to become a small Amazon server farm in some ways. So that's been a, a quite a learning curve. Um, but with that, the future. So we now have a team that's doing um, full fire risk assessments. So we take a variety of different fire models that exist, plus some tools we built in house. And we can project the forest forward in time up to 30 or 40 years and do um, take historic fire and re-simulate fire hate, fire behavior, but also take into account the digital landscape that's been scanned and the road networks and the infrastructure, timber prices. And we can actually take that through to um, target a fire risk rating by stand, as well as calculate the avoided costs given real market value. So we're doing that's part of the future. We've just provided that actually a month ago to one of our first landscape scale clients. Um, and it's been, I would say, largely a success. Got some edits, but um, did pretty good. And then um, growing, growing trees forward. Um, we have now, we just finished a pilot project with a uh, hundred thousand acres where we had two different LIDAR flights are there are flights, but two different points in time, uh, a, more than a growing season apart. And we did a match of all the trees and then did expressed uh, growth rates. And like you said, even though we only had 90% of the trees, we we're able to show site index maps for at least that time period over a very extensive landscape. And it differed significantly from the site index measures that the client had in their in their database of how they were expecting the trees to grow. Some were better, some were not. Um, so that's that's the future is, is uh, multiple flights of LIDAR, being able to go beyond inventory into financial decisions, um, into fire risk, and into uh, growth and yield. Um, 
we've toyed with some merchandising, but I think merchandising, at least at this point, is best left to the the merchandising minds of the world that use really complicated tools like Sims and and uh, YT Gen and Woodstock. Um, yeah. Those models have so much horsepower behind them. The greats made them. I think for now they're they're somewhat untouchable. So yeah, yeah that's yeah. where we're at right now. Yeah, very cool. It's, 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 well, I think you might have just defined your next force reforms theme of beyond <laughs> inventory, right? So so it's neat because when you're saying that, it's like, oh, it's like, you know, obviously it's for inventory, but those use cases are like into fire and whatnot. Carbon is carbon kind of rearing its head into your world given the whole climate is. tech base. Yeah. It is. I mean, we we work with quite a few different carbon brokers have for years, but on the, on the field side. So we've done carbon plots and put in the verification audits and everything. Um, yeah, I guess for any carbon carbon brokers out there that want to test it, you know, we've got a lot of different high resolution LIDAR scans with a full digital inventory of the landscape. I would die to have some, someone say, here's the carbon project we would put in this on this landscape. We'll go out, we'll put the field data in, we'll do the whole project standalone as a carbon project. But then I want to compare that to the digital inventory that we have. I just want to see if maybe there's an opportunity to educate the carbon world on collecting inventory, just from a boots on the ground standpoint, because it is so costly, both human resources and dollars, For sure. to install one of these carbon projects. And we've done some big ones. And really my my interest there is mostly because we keep getting asked to do carbon audits and plots and it's getting harder and harder to find people to go out on the ground and hammer it field data day in and day out. If there's an opportunity to where we can leverage any of the remote sensing technology to really get these, these carbon baselines set, I think it's a win for everybody, but you know, we got to test it. So yeah, the well, carbon's on our radar. Well, it sounds like you got to like up that Navy SEALs training program for the the folks going down south, right? And, and get them going for carbon. And so so that's awesome. Like challenge thrown down to the, the viewers and listeners because there's definitely some carbon folks that check this podcast out. So there you go. Challenge thrown down. Mark's throwing it down to you and like give him a call. We'll get details at the end of this podcast for you. So, so just as a point of clarification, I know you mentioned custom mapping. Like, do you guys own your own sensors now and, and you're your own aircraft or no we so don't partnered okay cool yep. so um yeah definitely cool but you know to your comment around building a data center on premise like yeah. that's not for the faint to heart right because everybody's kind <laughs> of going to the cloud and just like not my problem not my problem there's like hundreds <laughs> of engineers somewhere babysitting it but if you got to do that in-house like holy cow that's yep. there's a risk component there too no in terms of yeah there is better not go on fire Oh no, we've got we've got off-premise backups. We have yeah. cloud backups, um, but there we don't do the processing in the cloud. We can't serve the client their data in the cloud. So having it having it in office allows us to serve through like an Esri portal interface to the client throughout the project, so they can see how it's going. They can interact with the data. Um, so no, we've we've done pretty well. Yeah, we have. I would say that we incur quite a bit of expense because of that. That's maybe different than some folks because yeah. we have a team that just babysits the servers that just makes sure everything works. We have power backups. We have redundant power. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a very stable system and hasn't had a glitch in three years, which is awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm sure in the early not... days it was Mark just covering his eyes and just signing <laughs> Yeah, what am I signing now? Yeah, I'm just going to sign. Sure, you need a there, backup. There power. Is a lot I don't know what that, that is, but I'm going to sign it and and hope that <laughs> it comes out, works out from the end. So yeah, definitely, totally cool. So you mentioned Esri technology. I think this is a great segue. Mm -hmm. We've talked about Forest View, super cool technology, and we'll we'll get contact information at the end. But if we shift gears and maybe I'm I'm curious to know. I won't keep saying dying because that has a morbid context, but like technology wise for our listeners and viewers like what what's what's nmi run is esri shop or is it a mix open source or whatever works what are the technologies okay. nmi uh, uses to drive its business so we run everything in-house through um scripts so we use python we use r we use c um languages like that that's how everything in force view is built and and operated 
Um, we are an Esri and QGIS shop. So all of us that are programmers and and do the the data crunching, we're all pretty much in the Q world. We use QGIS, free open source. Um, all of our clients are Esri. So because of client need, we're an Esri shop. So we have the full Esri suite, Esri portal, uh, enterprise, you name it. And so, um, yeah, we have Arc Pro, Arc Map, Arc Online, and then our full suite of services that comes out of the server, which is what the fiber line's for. So we we do host Esri dashboards so the clients can see their um, their product as it goes. It's not a service we charge for. We just, we use that really as a project update because Esri's got it figured out. I mean, it's a fantastic software. It's easy to build dashboards and and graphs and different ways to see your data and zoom around and sorts and filters. So yeah, that's cool. pretty much our shop for uh, cool. for the remote sensing stuff. Yeah, so obviously like a broad diverse workforce if they know how to wield the QGIS and the Esri hat and then yes. these different things and scripts. So that's, that's definitely cool. And I suspect being close to University of Idaho helps in terms of maybe talent, maybe not people that go do the actual field work, but at least knowledge workers if that's the is that the right term uh, to use? Yep. Yeah. yeah the university because of the school force they actually they've surprised us they've had quite a few field staff that have come to us um and then uh, computer science staff computer engineers um geosciences as well as all the natural resource and forestry yeah, um very cool but yeah we've got let's see we have 38 full-time staff and 15 or 20 seasonals or thing i think or something around there so yeah, yeah it's been yeah. uh Pretty good diversity. Yeah, I almost think of every all you guys, you know, under your dress shirt, you, you've got a T-shirt that's either a, a, a nerdy QG or R Studio totally. or something like that, right? <laughs> or a Python logo, who knows, right? You guys wear it, wear it with pride. Lennox, so. <laughs> Lennox Penguin. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so maybe looking forward, like you're obviously, um, you know, full on in the technology and as as maybe one traditional forestry company, you know, obviously not anymore. You've got a full full range of offerings. Um, what does technology mean to you as you look forward a year, three years out? Like when we think, you know, you mentioned Sentinel, there's obviously the EO space, you know, you're talking about large like data science by default in terms of how you're managing these large volumes of data, geospatial with the technology. But is there something in the next year or three years, you know, maybe like take you back from your, you know, into that director of technology, looking around who's who in the zoo and what people are doing? Is there something that kind of piques your interest or gets you excited maybe for the second or third or fourth? How how many iterations it is in terms of the, the technology curve? Is there something out there now that you're like, gee whiz, if this comes together, it can be maybe the next game changer? What 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 are your thoughts on that or what are you watching I mean, yeah, if I could wave my magic wand, um, it would be it would be awesome to see like hyperspectral LIDAR become a little more usable. I don't know that that's in the next one to three years. Um, I think if we can get the USGS and or the, the agencies that take over 3DEP to, to collect a higher quality specification of national LIDAR with a sensor that's a matrix scanner, I think there's going to be value across many industries on doing that. Some of the open source tools out there are pretty pretty neat these days. Um, I just, one of my younger staff the other day showed me an iPad that's got a LIDAR scanner on it. Uh, I think it's more of an augmented reality, but it was pretty cool. Um, so I, I think it's just, I don't have anything specific that, that gets me excited other than the technology is being adopted. I, I do see that um, maybe blame it a little bit on COVID. People were more used to sitting in front of their computers and doing things on a computer because they were isolated. And so that's, it's been a really neat thing to see that people are at least open to hearing about remote sensing and technology in the forestry sector. Whereas, you know, ag has kind of left us in the dust for years. For sure. So, yeah, I think for me, the exciting part is people are adopting it. They're, we're getting onto that curve of adoption a little bit better, no matter who's providing it. And I think for that, it's going to provide our sector with some more people to hire, um, more opportunities to train some of these young young 
professionals that are coming out that are probably more adept on their phone than some of us are on a, on a computer. And I, I think that's the part that excites me is the people that are maybe going to come into our industry and, and help us all do a better job. Yeah. So the people side, yes. When you mentioned yeah. 3DAP, the, the 3D elevation program for yes. the U S and with the, the QL levels, are you, are you thinking there's a forestry specific version or are you thinking just from how they're defining their, their specs that it could be tighter um, across the board for the benefit of, of multiple sectors? Like you think there might be a forestry variant one because oh, again, forestry as you know is yeah. always a second class right like oh that's the stuff above, right. above the ground who the hell cares about this stuff above the ground like duh but uh yeah. but, but just curious to know what you meant in terms of of uh what 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 would be those improvements or enhancements you would like to see uh, yep. uh if if uh, they were to update that program yeah specifically it'd be the latter point you mentioned there um a tightening of the specs um a focus on a higher pulse density with a smaller uh, footprint beam divergence on the ground so that it can be flown. It'll provide better DEMs, which meets the 3DEP program, but something that's also usable across forest that can update FAI or FIA, which is the forest inventory analysis for the whole entire United States. I know there's some area-based methods that are working on that, but if there was a way to at least fly, for example, all the national forests and the national parklands, uh, the federal lands of the United States with that level of data, there's open source tools or companies that could do the processing and it would provide an unknown amount of value across the emergency management systems, the forestry people, the roads people, rangelands, hydrologists, I mean, all all disciplines really would benefit from having that level of data. Um, it wouldn't be as any more valuable for towns and stuff, but it could be. But mostly it'd be the natural lands, I think. Sure. Yeah, an increase yeah. in spec. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so definitely interesting to hear your views on what the future could look like. It sounds like, you know, there's not necessarily one technology that's gee whiz, slap Dr. Correo in the face with like, this is the next game changer. Sounds like there's still lots of work to be done by all of us in the community to further educate and increase the adoption. But maybe thinking of looking at it from a different way, what, what what's the biggest objection you see now? Because you do the traditional inventory with, with boots on the ground and cruising. What, what do you see right now as the biggest objection? Is it really around trust and relationships versus is the technology good enough or is it still in the, I just don't believe the technology is too black boxy or, or this is how it's, we've always done it. It's like, sure. not <laughs> um, see, this is funny. Everyone, everyone who laughs at that <laughs> one knows has their battle scars or, or I call it arrows in our back, uh, another rite of passage. But what would you say is the biggest challenge right now? I'm thinking of our listeners that again, might be right. kind of thinking of doing this or maybe have already done around of this newfangled LIDAR technology and sure. contemplating the next one. Um, is there something we've learned or you've learned working with the community, the industry, that that's a different way of messaging maybe in terms of what the opportunity is? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the uh, the I hear two. The two biggest objections we get is one, we'd rather do it in-house um, or try to do it in-house. Um, and then the, and that one's probably a, about a third of the time. The the other one that lion's share of the objections is, so what do we do after we have it? That's, that's it is, okay, I, I don't care if it's a black box or not. If it's good and it's field verified and it's a believable, well, then what do I do with it? How do I handle it? How do I use it? Um, you know, when you hand someone a terabyte of data, then then they don't know what to do with it. So that's actually been where we focused the last two years is to say, okay, you know, and that's why we use the, the Esri, the Esri software is say, okay, here's your project and you can watch it as it goes through. And as they ask us questions, we build them widgets and then they can use those widgets and they can get familiar with it. So it's all people, it's all learning. Um, and then at the end of it, we, we will spend time with any client to sit down with them and say, okay, you can put small chunks of it into your world, or you can use a cloud service, or you can have us host it. Um, 
in an interface that's touchable and interactable, but you can't break it. So I think that's probably the next wave for all natural resource um, remote sensing providers, as well as the universities. I, I would challenge the universities, build tools that allow someone to interact with an area or even more difficultly, a single tree level analysis. I mean, you can go and build through an R script, a single tree, we call it rainbow trees, where you don't know how right or wrong it is, but it'll give you a whole mess of data that will allow you to build tools to interact with that, that single tree file. Do that. I think that's what the next focus should be for the industry is how do you interact with a single tree, an entirely digital landscape? How do you map it? How do you select areas of it? How do you do just simple tasks? It's like when we were in school, probably you go back to being a freshman in school when you first got introduced to GIS and you spent an hour banging your head against the computer just to draw a polygon. I feel like we're maybe coming full circle to that with the size of the data we have now. Yeah, yeah, definitely interesting. Definitely interesting to hear you. Uh you know, talk less about technology, but just back to people. And and do you see a pattern with, uh, how do I ask this in a polite way without getting completely spammed later on? But <laughs> do you see it? Do you feel a generational change is underfoot? And maybe that helps with the acceptance of some of these new technologies and the not the other way of putting it bluntly, they'll, uh, I say gray hairs lovingly, but, you know, the gray hairs as as they retire and move on, do you, do you sense that or do you see a shift there with a the younger work, workforce coming in with different demands in terms of what their job as a forester should look like? Are you seeing that in your your geographies uh, yet? Yeah, I would say broadly, um, yes, but I think in a positive way. So we have a lot of the, the gray hair level folks, the people that are at the sunset of their career. Um, they're actually really excited about this. Because they're like, man, that would allow something that I've always wanted to do, I could never do. Like, we could never see that on the landscape. It took so many hours and days of cruising. We could never see that in our forest. So we get that excitement. And on the flip side, yeah, you have the new generations incoming. Um, they like shiny. They don't want to be necessarily uncomfortable in getting rained on and snowed on and sweating and getting poked with branches in the field so um there is there is a positive opportunity there that they see these kind of cool tools and it, it does entice them enough that they'll they'll spend a little bit of time in the field but yes it's a i think harnessing the two of them um is probably why the industry is moving forward a bit i mean across america anyway the the baby boomer generation is waves of retirement right now yeah. Well, there's all their kids are kind of coming into it. Um, and so I think they, those two generations, I think are close enough linked parents to children that it's actually a, a benefit. Um, but it's our industry learning how to harness that. That's going to, that's going to be a bit of the challenge. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I'm dying to know, you know, you being involved with NMI, your father <laughs> having led it for so many years, like this work that you're doing, is this, any hard conversations with with dad about what the future looks like, no. like or, or this was a smooth sailing it's like yes all right mark go ahead lead this the initiative it's it's all good like like what can you share what on that it? front <laughs> so that, okay that's a really awesome story and and if he ever watches this he's gonna roll over and laugh <laughs> but um so it's funny because i brought him the idea of lidar when i was in school and I explained it to him and he's always been a very visionary man. And so he just glommed onto it and he was like, oh, and he got all excited, started his eyes. And I explained to him kind of what I was thinking with trees and planes. And, and so it was like probably a year later when we started working together in the company, he presented it at one of these meetings. He's like, we need to find someone who to look at this LIDAR research. And and this is what we're gonna do. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait, <laughs> so that, that was mine. Wait a minute, yeah, Dad. You're uh, it was pretty me. funny. It was funny because he's he's always been a visionary, and and actually that's why we work together great. I don't know that we've ever had any hard conversations because he's the first one to admit he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, you are so woo. Um, that he's like, obviously you know what you're doing. And it's turning out all right. So 
So he would back us, but it was funny that he was like, yeah, my idea to start LIDAR inventories, that was, <laughs> that was definitely what was going to save the company's future. And, and so <laughs> we had a lot of, we've had a lot of good laughs over that one, but. Um, well, well, as no, we said at the great. start, our parents are always right, right? Here's just another example <laughs> of your dad being right, right? Absolutely. We'll just nod our heads and grin and laugh. Absolutely. We only listened sooner. Exactly. I, I told him this since he was a young, young boy. <laughs> he just wouldn't listen. And and here we are today. So, you know, as we're looking to close down, you also uh, are one of the one of the OGs, I guess, uh, of the Foresters Forum. Um, what are you seeing on that street? Or maybe for our listeners, uh, describe to us or introduce what the Foresters Forum is, its its goal, sure. and and what are you sensing on the ground? Because like you're uniquely positioned because you're leading this this event and then meeting the people that that are ultimately the end users of this stuff. So you know you're closest really to source to some of this. Um, what's the Foresters Forum? And then is it running this coming year again with COVID? Yep. Who knows? I think he ran one last year, anyways. But we did. Yep. what are you what are you seeing on the the ground with uh, that audience? Sure. So the Forcers Forum um, was developed by uh, by my father, Vincent Correo, and one of his partners, Jim Riley. Uh, let's see, be 22 years ago. And it was meant to literally be a forum. So we bring all of industry together, anyone that we can find. It's mostly private industry. And we set up any speaker that's got anything that could potentially help them do a better job or understand something better on their landscape. So all commercial industry, small private landowners, you name it. Um, that's what the forum is. Uh, this year, the theme is called the power of forestry. And I say this year, it's every February. Um, so February 23 will be the next one. So the theme is power of forestry and it's going the, it's a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the first day sets the stage. So this year it's going to talk about everything from traditional forestry and forest practices through um, time to the infusion of technology to the future of, of education. Uh, we're going to bring in the Idaho Forest Products Commission and some other folks. And that sets the stage for Thursday, which is the big day, which we have keynote speakers that talk about different areas of the industry the pulse on, on where the industry is going, what the economy is doing, et cetera. And then Friday is all certification. So um, goes through SFI, FSC, the updates and standard changes and et cetera. So um, as far as the pulse of it, it's been amazing to hear what industry looks for. And I don't know that it's changed much since you and I started in this career. Um, but it's operational tools that help them do things more efficiently. And I think there's a really, there's a lot of buzz around remote sensing tools and the interfaces that can then use those products when they're out there. I think that's kind of where I made the comment of, it seems like the world has really taken hold of this and people are starting to adopt it. It's really come from the Foresters Forum and the comments that we get back that say, you know, thank you for trying to bring this technology to us so that we can understand more about it. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Definitely a, a great initiative you guys are doing there again, building knowledge, creating more outreach to the community. So very cool event. So again, February, 2023, uh, the good old Google will get you there to the page to, to find yep. more details. Uh, so, so, Hey Mark, thanks so much for, for joining me on this call. I love the conversation. I love hearing your viewpoints. I'm giggling inside mostly because, you know, your dad's always right too. You know, some of the stories, your experiences, I think a lot of people who listen to this will, will resonate with them. A lot of them have been on that, that path. And, and I think everyone would agree there's something in the water, like, whereas before maybe we're always kind of swimming upstream, maybe, maybe we kind of found that, mm -hmm. that crest and we can start riding downstream with a lot of uh, people. So in terms of folks who want to get a hold of you, again, to, to talk forestry, talk LIDAR specs, you know, traditional forestry, your experiences compared to newer technologies, basically leverage your expertise. What's the best way for, for people to get a hold of you? Obviously, social media, LinkedIn, email, but is there one that's the best way straight straight right to, to Dr. Mark Correll? Um, Most of the time through the website, I'm the one that manages the the if you go to our contacts page and you drop down box and say lidar and write a message in there it comes to me uh that's that or just my direct email 
is the is the fastest way to get me. Um, I'm like most of us across the industry, connected to a phone 24 seven. So yeah, yeah, that's that. the, that's and the what's best your, way. And what's your email? I always put people on the spot. Oh, throw it yeah. out there. My email is uh, m-c-o-r-r-a-o at n-m-i the number two dot com. There you go. There you go, folks. So if you need to chat with uh, the director of technology at NMI, this is the man. You could reach out directly to him. So again, Dr. Correo, thanks so much for joining with me on the Digital Forester. Love the story. Wishing you all the best. Looking to, forward to see the, the success with Forest View and, and uh, eager to check out the technology one of these days when we get to, to meet in person and uh, dive in a bit more. So again, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely, Kevin. Thank you so much.